It's Midweek Media Watch with Colin Peacock in our Wellington studio. Good evening, Colin. Kia ora, Karen. How's your day been? Oh, not too bad, not too bad. I've been nice day here in Wellington, but uh, yeah, chilly this evening. I cycled down here just about an hour ago. It just about took my skin off, so I Did underestimated it. it. Mm. I got to cycle home, obviously. Yeah, but that's up the hill. I'll be sweating like crazy, so not so much of a problem. T-shirt and shorts up the hill. Uh, well, thank you for coming in. Uh, let's talk about the local elections. We're talking with the new mayor. We've, we've got a spotlight on some of the new mayors around the country this week, and of course there's been so much in the media about the outcome of the local elections. Is that an irony, given that not many of us were interested enough to vote? Yeah, I suppose it is, um, because that low, low turnout in so many places and the huge variations between neighbourhoods and wards and even you know within regions, that was a big talking point in the media on the day after. People are a bit shocked by it. Um, hopefully uh, the media could actually be a part of the solution, uh, the, the discussion about what might be done to improve this uh, next time round, uh, and we'll try and look at that a bit on the Media Watch program in the weekend on Sunday. But, you know, because this wasn't unexpected in a sense, watching TVNZ's Q&A show, uh, Katie Bradford of TVNZ, who um, helped cover the elections, even though her main job is business correspondent, um, pointed this out. They discussed it with a bit of passion, actually, herself and John Campbell, who was the fill-in host, and she was making the point, look, that the trend has been going down over several elections, and the same persistent concerns about the way the voters is organised, as well as the way that it splits out once the result comes in, uh, you know, these are not new things. So, yes, hopefully uh, the bit of attention on that might just um, make a difference when it comes to next time. And Auckland's contest dominated the national media coverage, didn't it? Well, it did a bit. I mean, that that does tend to happen. It's happened in previous elections where you've had a close or interesting race, and partly because local media is relatively weak in certain parts of the country. Uh, it's kind of down to local papers these days, really, to carry the load. There's not so much local news broadcasting uh, to air things like debates and interviews with local candidates. So, yeah, often it's the way that wherever you live in the country, you'll hear more about um, the race to be Auckland's mayor. Wellington had a, where I am, had a, a, a an interesting result. Um, so that got a bit of media attention. Um, but there was this theme, wasn't there, uh, this narrative that seemed to come out in the in the media coverage of uh, a lurch to the right, as often it was often described. Um, but I would, uh, having mentioned that Q&A show on TV1, they did a good job of like going all the way around the country on the morning after. And that's harder to do on television uh, than it is for radio. So they had you know, Tania Tapsell and Rothrua, Nick Smith and Nelson, uh, Jules Radich, uh, the new mayor in Dunedin, and others. So good on them for not just going to the main centres or uh, the most significant races. And it was a bit of a contrast there. Rivals over on TV Channel 3, News Hub Nation, they on Sunday tend to rerun the show they did on the Saturday. Uh, so their big live effort is on the Saturday. And I thought it was a bit of a shame that they were replaying what was clearly, you know, a 24-hour-old show with no local election uh, reaction at all on it. So that that's a bit disappointing. But if you did want that, you just flipped over to TV1 and that's what Q&A were offering. And so I think by and large, as I said, Q&A, that show did treat those results as they should be. They were talking to local candidates uh, about why they won and what the local issues were. And we heard a lot of them kind of venting about Wellington and we got that sense that um, they weren't happy about centralisation of the government and so on. But, um, you know, there was this narrative of trying to interpret this as something that might be significant for the general election next year. Was there a lurch to the right? Was this really purely a local thing? And on Q&A, 
John Campbell couldn't resist uh, the temptation to speculate about, you know, what he thought the result meant on a wider level. And we don't know this yet, so it's me reading the tea leaves, although we do a lot of this uh, at this stage of the electoral cycle, right? It felt like a patrician vote. It felt like a NIMBY vote. It felt like the property owners voting against intensification. What are the messages for the government about how those who turned out to vote are feeling about things like intensification, RMA reforms, three waters, etc.? Yeah, so that that there was actually a question. So sitting opposite him was TVNZ's political e- uh, editor, Jessica Much, uh, waiting for a chance to get in and talk about that ad. So John was clearly wanting to say what he thought it all meant nationwide, what was going on in people's heads. And kind of a shame, really, because I think the focus really ought to be on that local stuff. And on the day after, I think it's a bit of a mistake to try and interpret, you know, what this what this means, what the mood is, what's really driving this, because it's different everywhere around the country. The Prime Minister certainly thought so. Uh, but uh, Lots of commentators w- were doing that, though. They're still doing it now uh, as we go into this week following the election. And But the shift to the right, Colin, it was a clear trend. So fair enough to focus on that? Yeah, I, I suppose it was. I'm picking on John Campbell a bit there. Um, morning Report, for example, when they introduced the, the programme in the morning, called it um, a turning tide. Uh, the Prime Minister, as you mentioned, didn't see it the same way. She pushed back in her interview uh, telling Guy Nespiner that, look, Auckland elected John Banks during the Helen Clark era, um, likewise, or, or conversely, I suppose, uh, Len Brown in the John Key years. So she was saying, look, local politics have its own um, its own sort of rhythm, I think was the way she put it. And uh, other, I've seen a map, I'm not sure who, who compiled it, but someone put up a map just to make the point that, look, there were quite large regions of the country where uh, I think 36 or 37 incumbent mayors were re-elected. So it wasn't always this, uh, you know, throughout the country that there was a so-called mood for change or lurch, you know, rightwards or or any particular direction. Yeah, but there were others too, like on 9 to noon doing the politics slot, Gareth Hughes, former Green MP, came straight out and said, yep, I reckon it's a ratepayers revolt and an anti-government response right across the country. Um, But I thought pollster... David Ferrer, on his Kiwi blog, of which he is the editor, uh, was a little bit extreme in his, his headline. He uh, he listed all the left-leaning candidates and incumbents that got um, bumped out on in the local elections under the heading "The Slaughter of the Lambs." And I, I thought a bit over the top to you know just compare you know not winning a local election uh, with um, you know. A visit to the abattoir or something like that. Jacinda <laughs> uh, Ardern did seem rattled in that rather unnatural laugh that the laughing off, you know, suggestions that Labor got a hiding in the local body elections. So um, you can see why those headlines might have been like that. Yeah, indeed. And I mean, one who took it. Even a step further was Bernard Hickey, because he was agreeing with the things that John Campbell said in a rather rushed fashion uh, in that clip we heard earlier about that was this NIMBYs, was this property owners wanting to preserve everything they have. I mean, Bernard, as, as you probably know from, I'm sure you've interviewed him a few times, his yes. his big thing is that we've had this intergenerational transfer of wealth because so much of our economy uh, and our, our um, well-being or whatever is tied up with property ownership. And if you've got it, um, it's all good. If you haven't, you're going to struggle. And uh, he, his take in his um, blog, The Kaka, um, was that uh, yeah, a democratic deficit and a broken relationship at the heart of our political political economy has engineered a monstrous intergenerational wealth transfer since 1989. These results lock it in for decades to come. 
Uh, he called it the great boomer backlash of 2022, and he says this will further stymie moves to densify housing in the inner suburbs um, to do other things, transport mode shifts from cars to um, buses, walking, cycling, and all of that for at least a decade, he thinks. And Bernard also does uh, a podcast every day of his, his newsletter, The Kaka, and he went on to say in his podcast on Monday uh, that he reckoned this wasn't uh, just a result that would worry Jacinda Ardern and Labour. One of the co- co-founders of the Townhouse Nation density requirement in the Enhanced Housing Supply Bill was national itself, and we will see how long that densification push led by Nicola Willis and Chris Bishop lasts under Christopher Luxon going into the election next year because there's an awful lot of centre-right voters who are not keen on that either. In Wellington, though, a mayor in favour of housing density and walking and cycling got elected. So did the media see that coming? (laughs) No, no, they really didn't. Well, some people thought she would win. She uh, ran a fairly high-profile campaign. That's Tori Whanau, um, former, uh, basically representing the Greens. Uh, and green candidates did well right uh, right throughout Wellington and the Greater Wellington region, um, but uh, yeah, no one saw the extent of her victory coming. Um, and by the way, here in the capital, we get a bit nervous when anyone talks about landslides as a result. <laughs> so there was a, a bit of that. But I thought, um, seeing I'm, I'm kind of picking on TVNZ's Q and A show now, but they ran a Cantar poll. In fact, they did one in Auckland and one in Wellington uh, in, in the, about the midpoint of the campaign. Uh, and they turned out not to be at all accurate, not to predict uh, the margin of victory that was so convincing for Wayne Brown and for Tori Fano. And I'm a bit conflicted about this because um, when Q&A did their scientific poll, commissioned Cantar, the pollsters, uh, to do it for them, they had uh, Wellington, uh, or rather a Labour MP here in Wellington, Paul Eagle, in the lead, uh, and Tori Fano and Andy Foster, the incumbent, uh, close behind him. So it looked like a close race. And at that time, we criticised here on Media Watch, we criticised stuff in the Dominion Post for running its own poll of its own readers. So very unscientific, uh, self-selected, even people from outside Wellington could vote. You just had to be a stuff online reader. And uh, the favourite in their poll was Tori Fano. They ran a headline saying that she'd emerged as a clear favourite. Uh, and we said, look, these are unscientific polls. Shouldn't um, shouldn't air those, shouldn't put them in the paper. And uh, lo and behold, <laughs> the actual results on election night more closely uh, m- uh, matched that, uh, that dodgy poll, as I'm going to call it, uh, and not the scientific one done by TVNZ. So a bit of a shame. But uh, one thing that did come out of it, though, was on that nine to noon slot I mentioned earlier, Gareth Hughes was saying... Um, that her win showed that campaigning really matters. She did a lot of campaigning. She declared very early. All the other candidates were a bit cagey, figured that people's attention spans wouldn't be long enough, so they declared quite late in the piece. And I think uh, quite a few commentators have latched onto that fact and said, well, if you're looking for things that might be an important trend or pointer for future elections, uh, that's it. Run a big grassroots campaign and get out there and uh, give it everything from an early, um, from an early opportunity. Well, you'd hope they'd all do that, wouldn't you? But <laughs> yeah, you would. But some, like definitely Paul Eagle, for example, hedging his bets because he's a he's an MP as well. Uh, didn't really know what endorsement he was going to have. You know, he was facing questions: Will you stand? Will you not? And that's I, I'm guessing. I can't shouldn't speculate as to what goes on in people's heads because that's what I'm criticising others in the media for, perhaps. But that probably didn't go down well with quite a few voters. Didn't look like a commitment to uh, really winning or wanting the job. 
Uh, Clontori Fano, she was happy to talk about her win effusively with the media, but in Auckland, Wayne Brown, not so. <laughs> yeah, he cancelled his interviews, uh, some of which he'd agreed to do the day after. So he wasn't on, say, RNZ's Morning After special. And he agreed to go on that Q&A show I mentioned earlier uh, with John Campbell, but then the night before pulled out, told everyone he wanted to have the day off instead. And, uh, yeah, John Campbell, um, he had a view on that as well. And I have to say, speaking personally, I'm really disappointed about that. It would have been wonderful to hear from him. Do you think it's a risky strategy to snub the media like that? Oh, I think it is. And yeah, sort of John was a bit like, you know, your parents, isn't it? I'm not, not, not angry, just disappointed. Disappointed <laughs> in your way. Because, you know, he's often, he really thanks people for turning up. I'm so glad you were here and really appreciate your time. Thank you and see you next time and all of that. But yeah, when uh, Wayne Brown didn't play ball. But I think it is because, I mean, just today he's been answering uh, questions about how much time he will devote, uh, what office hours he will keep. And he bristled at that saying, it's none of your business. Um, but it seemed on that Sunday, deciding not to do any interviews the day after his victory, uh, that he's just not bothered by annoying uh, the media or putting them out. And um, the former editor at the New Zealand Herald, Tim Murphy, now the co-editor of Newsroom, uh, pointed out on social media, look, unfortunately, just dissing journalists and being rude to them uh, doesn't lose politicians any support these days. But, you know, they could have they could have really gone from in a way, couldn't they? Like They, they could have gone sort of, um, I don't know, 2015 period, Patrick Gower News Hub, you know, Wayne Brown feeling the pressure day one after his win, snubbing the media, uh, you know, unwilling to talk, batting back questions. You know, they they could have actually made it look like uh, this was a real error of judgment. So in a, in a sense, possibly got off a bit lightly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was actually a good reason for him to be interviewed on that Sunday because the chair of uh, Auckland Transport, um, an organisation he'd said he wanted to overturn, uh, actually resigned. So. That was a very good reason to have him on and talking to the media and a bit of a missed opportunity. Uh, It also meant when Wayne Brown actually turned up for work, uh, as promised on uh, the Monday morning, uh, the media squad was all waiting for him at the Auckland Council building and turned out Wayne Brown didn't actually appreciate that. When do you expect to announce a deputy and committee chairs? I'm in no rush to any of that stuff. I think it's quite clear. Certainly not before I've met everybody. Um, I've got this odd habit of liking to meet people before I make judgments about them. It's something which perhaps you guys could take up. Yeah, so sorry, the audio was a bit sketchy there. There was a stand-up press conference, but a couple of things in that. I mean, first of all, that was a very reasonable question, you know, when will you select the deputy? And that came from Stuff's Auckland Issues reporter, Todd Nile. And, you know, he's a, a very thorough, uh, respectful, responsible journalist um, and completely counterproductive and unnecessary of Wayne Brown to kind of make weak jibes at the media in, in that fashion. Um, you know, He's going to have to get used to dealing with reporters and specifically people like Todd. And shortly after that, Todd Nile appeared on Nine to Noon along with um, Simon Wilson, who'd previously been insulted by um, uh, Wayne Brown uh, uh, before the actual final vote came in. And when Todd talked about this, he said, look, if Wayne Brown is only going to engage with us in these sort of stand-up interviews where we doorstop him in public, uh, effectively, uh, all the, everybody's going to get out of that is short snippets and maybe sniffy exchanges like that one we just heard. And for a guy who's pledged to, you know, break things down and fix Auckland but never actually laid out much of a plan uh, during the campaign, it's not really good enough to, to not engage with the media, um, I would say. Um, so, you know, if if you... If if you do that as a politician and a leader, say I'm going to 
uh, I, I want people to quit. I want things broken up. I, w- I want to get amongst it. You, you really have to explain that. I think that's only fair. Um, but, but don't you think his attitude towards the media was really just an extension of his campaign? Generally, yeah, yeah, very, very much so. But um, you know, he turned up to public meetings, he turned up to debates. I mean, there, were, there was one with Simon Wilson, famously of the Herald, that he refused to attend, um, and then uh, later, you know, attended other ones instead. But you know, I don't, I don't see the point of it. I mean, for example, now on Today FM, the Tover O'Brien show. Uh, have said that they're starting a counter, the Wayne Brown counter, every day until Wayne Brown appears. Uh, they're going to add one to the tally, so they're on day three right now. So, you know, this sort of stuff is going to go on. Um, I've already heard him described as kind of embattled, which isn't a good look. Uh, I suppose Already? Is, yeah, well, he doesn't have to stand for election much, but it did make me think it can be worse. You know, we have uh, Liz Truss, the UK Prime Minister, really struggling, and The Economist magazine came out today with this withering assessment of her saying if you take out the time... Uh, that, that basically politics was suspended because of the death of the Queen. Uh, she's basically only been in charge for about a seven-day period and has already blown up her government. And the assessment of The Economist was that um, she's basically had the same political shelf life as a lettuce in a supermarket. Yeah. Wayne Brown, though, he's been a mayor and also DHB chair before, so he must know the score by now. He, he obviously did it deliberately. Yeah, but this is what I don't quite understand because he's actually got... <laughs> deeper connections to the media than I realised, or, or maybe that explains why he's, um, you know, so jaundiced. I don't know, but he was formerly uh, a director at TVNZ, although that's going back a few years, and also at Māori Television for Kāta Māori. So that's you know requires uh, you know a bit of commitment to the the media and what it's all about and what it's for. He was also a columnist for some time on the Sunday Star Times, you know, which is a top selling national newspaper, in fact, our only national uh, newspaper. Um, He also had a column for ages in the Northland paper, The Northern Age. So, you know, I would have expected he would, you know, show a little bit more uh, respect for the media. And uh, I happened upon uh, a press statement he put out back in 2011, so going back some time, when he was running for mayor of the far north. And he said... As mayor, I regularly attend public meetings and I always will openly discuss issues and answer any questions in a straightforward manner. So mm. things have changed in the last 11 years, maybe. Uh, Colin, I have to say uh, before we start this new topic that I've been appreciative of your reporting on the RNZ TVNZ merger. So thank you for that. And uh, last weekend on Media Watch, you spoke to TVNZ boss Simon Power about the upcoming public media merger of the two entities. And his job's going to cease. It'll be over when, when it happens. And there's been more in the media this week about who might lead the new outfit. <laughs> yes, there has. In fact, we did talk about... Uh, whether that might be Simon Power in uh, in that interview I did with him. It was quite long and we didn't get all of it in the actual broadcast show. We put it in our, our podcast instead. But after we cleared up the important business of um, F-Boy Island, uh, I did ask Simon Power if he actually wants the job of the new uh, public media entity. So for the RNZ National listeners that might not have heard that, but here's uh, part of his answer. Um, I haven't made a decision yet. Um, I am very busy thinking about how TVNZ is going to arrive um, on the 28th of February um, when the, new, the night before the new entity is set to, um, you know, set to take effect. Um, I think it's really important that I don't get distracted by what might happen after the 1st of March at this point. 
Mm, uh, he hasn't made a decision. Sounds like he's been asked. Uh, yeah, well, I, I don't blame him for not saying in a way. I think it makes things difficult if you um, possibly if you if you declare that straight away. I did, did sort of press the point saying it's a bit weird because he's he, he's been in the job. Um, well, only earlier this year, he took over from the long-serving uh, chief executive, Kevin Kenrick, who um, I guess, although he never said so explicitly, just wasn't keen on uh, on following through into this new uh, public media entity that TVNZ will become a part of. Um, but uh, Simon Power said, look, it's not that weird. I, you know, I have an interest in this. I you know, was a politician, a cabinet minister, and I appreciated uh, the media. It was a great opportunity, he said. He saw TVNZ as a real New Zealand Inc. company. And so he's, he was saying uh, all good things that, um, that were positive about the company and the prospects of the new outfit. But, yeah, certainly not willing to declare. I'd also ask that question of... Um, Paul Thompson on a couple of occasions, RNZ's chief executive, and he too said, look, I'm not giving any thought to this. Same line as Simon Power. I'm just here to make sure everything goes, uh, you know, towards that um, March the 1st date next year, and then it'll be up to uh, other people. Um, Very diplomatic. Mm. I'm, I'm sure they're both giving a great deal of thought to it. Yeah, but the Herald certainly has. The Herald run, yes, ran a, a power ranking of 12 runners and riders uh, for the job. And uh, the, the way they – this is the sort of thing you often see with, um, you know, contestants on Celebrity Treasure Island or Dancing with the Stars or something like that. <laughs> but the Herald said, given that this is happening during the Women's Rugby World Cup, we followed the lead of sports reporting to do a power ranking. Uh, and Simon Power is not ranked highly? Well, he didn't come out as the very top ranked of those candidates. Um, so how they did it was they did five marks each for uh, commercial experience, editorial skill, Culture Building, Communications Nows, and Government Whispering. So Simon Power was given 18 out of 25. He got he got a 5, I think, for, for Government Whispering. And I thought that was a bit weird because, you know, recently, as I think we've talked about on Midweek Media Watch, um, the Minister Worthy Jackson, in the first of the hearings on the public media entity legislation, um, made headlines by criticising TVNZ and its progress to the merger. He didn't single out the chief executive, but he said they, they need a, uh, a change of attitude. So a bit surprised to hear him uh, see him get uh, five out of five for uh, the, the government aspect of that. But, yeah, he did rate slightly higher than RNZ's own Paul Thompson, I think, got 16 out of 25. And there were others from the sort of commercial world who, who, uh, who got even higher rankings. Who did the rankings? Oh, this was the New Zealand Herald's media writer and, and business journalist, Damien Venuto. And I'd, I'd be slightly wary of it, given that media is, is his round. If I was a media executive who was um, thought he he or she was uh, you know in with a good shout, uh, you might be miffed to be looking through that and seeing someone else you consider a more of an outside bet to, to rank higher. So it might, might come back on him next time he wants a comment. And some of the choices were just a bit, Odd. Like, for example, uh, Bailey Mackey, uh, he's the head of production company uh, Pungal Productions, also a board member at New Zealand Rugby. Um, but no actual experience, I, uh, as far as I know, at actually running you know, a large broadcast company uh, rather than you know, the production and program making. Um, yes, yeah, so some, some experience, obviously, in governance, directorship, entrepreneurship and so on, uh, making quite public service style programs and quite commercial ones like the GC back in the day, I think was one of his. But they rated him, I think, 21 out of 25. Or uh, Forgive me, I don't have the figures in front of me, but very highly. Um, and I thought that was a bit of a surprising choice. Others that were on the list, in case uh, people are interested, were um, executives from 
broadcast and telecom. So, for example, Cam Wallace, the uh, uh, chief executive at MediaWorks, uh, Jim Mather, who's the RNZ char- uh, chair and former chief executive of Māori Television, Sophie Maloney of Sky TV, she's the current chief executive there, um, and Jason Paris, he's... Um, the current chief executive of Vodafone, which is now going through a rebrand of its own, and he's worked at um, MediaWorks and TVNZ at executive levels if you go back a few years. And then a few from business like Teresa Gatting, for example, former telecom and My Food Bag founder, um, and Joan Withers, who's, I think, on the board of TVNZ now. Uh, I think I'm right in saying that. And a former chief executive at um, Fairfax Media, which is now called Stuff, and uh, you know, a good deal of corporate experience there. So the question for people like those is whether those those business people with lots of directorships and so on would really want to give it up, uh, albeit that this job might have a, a salary of in the region of a million bucks or so. Well, whoever they appoint, the time's drawing close, isn't it? March next year. Yeah, which feels like a fairly long way away. But if you are trying to get someone from the top levels of business, it's not necessarily all that long. Although the board will have the power to appoint an interim chief executive as well, so possibly they've foreseen that that might be a problem. But look, lots still got to happen. Um, The second reading of the bill will have to happen, and the select committee will have to report back on all those hearings that we've we've reported on these last couple of weeks, um, and all the submissions been made, something like just under a thousand submissions from the public and from industry on the legislation for the public media entity. Um, Also... My ears pricked up a bit on uh, Monday listening to that nine to noon politics slot that I mentioned earlier, because along with Gareth Hughes, the Green MP, they had Brigitte Morton, uh, who's um, uh, sort of their right leaning pundit and uh, works at a law firm. And she uh, said that she thought um, the Labour election results, this lurch to the right we talked about earlier, might prompt Labour to pull back on a whole lot of things that have been contentious and might have swayed people um, uh, in the opposite direction, like Three Waters, for example. And she threw in the RNZ-TVNZ merger uh, as to uh, things that she thought the government might want to space out a little bit because of the the public reaction that they could see from those local elections. Well, Colin, the the Women's Rugby World Cup is up and running. You couldn't miss it. Uh, Most of the media is fizzing about it, aren't they? Yeah, it's been been lots of enthusiastic coverage, probably not of the scale... um, the hyperactivity you'd see if it was men's Rugby World Cup, um, particularly if it was being held here in New Zealand. In fact, if you cast your mind back, what was it, 2011? So what, 11 years ago, that that was happening here. And yeah, it was hard to um, get anything else from the media at that time. Um, in fact, when the matches were on, I think they were, sometimes they were on four channels at once. Um, so yeah, a huge deal. But um, the matches this time are on Spark Sport, uh, the live game, so the app for subscribers uh, with delayed coverage on TV3 uh, of the Black Ferns matches. So a bit like the old days when, you know, Sky would screen it for their paying customers live and uh, everyone else who didn't have the subscription had to um, wait an hour and tune in and hope no one was going to tell them the score. Um, but interestingly, one interesting choice, this uh, I, I noticed watching TVNZ Sport uh, just before the big kickoff at Eden Park for the Black Ferns. So... TVNZ Sports Bulletin on One News that night uh, kicked off with World Cup fever like this. Kia ora, welcome to sport. It's kick-off time. The Women's Rugby World Cup underway in New Zealand with 40,000 fans packing into Eden Park for the opening triple header. In about half an hour, the main event, for most of the local fans at least, the Black Ferns taking to the field against Australia with the weight of a nation on their shoulders. 
Yeah, so all good so far. Hyping it up there. That was the start of the sports bulletin, but the end of it, the sports bulletin ended this way. And the live sport continues tonight right here on TVNZ1 after the news with the Black Caps and their build-up to the T20 World Cup. So much live sport around. Yeah. Rugby, cricket on here, TV1. Yeah, so cricket straight after the news. Yeah, settle in, watch it. All right. No, you know me. Thanks, Abby. (laughs) Mm. So... There we had the biggest moment ever in women's rugby here in New Zealand, the kickoff of a Rugby World Cup featuring our team. And TVNZ was showing at the same time uh, a men's cricket international, uh, Black Caps in Pakistan, a T20 game, free-to-air, which doesn't happen often uh, on free-to-air telly, uh, a li- live international sport, and urging viewers to watch that, which you know would have split the potentially the live sport audience in half. So I don't know whose idea it was to schedule a men's cricket international at the same time as the kickoff for the Black Ferns in a Rugby World Cup, uh, let alone to broadcast it live on TV for free, um, which uh, you couldn't see the, um, the Black Ferns for free until an hour later delayed on TV3. Do we know if it affected the viewing of the Black Ferns match? Well, you think it must have, because there would have been a lot of households where, you know, particularly maybe the blokes wanted to see the cricket. But um, Spark Sport later told stuff that the game had rated better than the Black Caps losing to Pakistan on Saturday Night Live on TV1. They said uh, their spokesperson is quoted uh, by staff as saying, we won't be disclosing numbers, but uh, the All Blacks versus Australia match, uh, sorry, the Black Ferns versus Australia match was the most watched live content on Spark Sport over the weekend, and they insist it had more viewers um, than, uh, yeah, than the cricket. Well, it didn't deter a, I won't say record crowd, because a lot of people had the tickets, but they didn't go for the women's rugby turning up to Eden Park. Yeah, I think it was still a record for a women's rugby international. Right, for women's rugby, right. Got yeah, it, yep. but I mean, it's true because it was, uh, as we heard on TVNZ, they were saying it's sold out, Eden Park, things are pumping here, and how to go to kick off and all of that. And then it did jar with seeing the live pictures and clearly, you know, a whole bunch of empty uh, grey seats in the stands. Uh, so that was a bit of a shame. There were some nice pieces written about the atmosphere of the occasion. Uh, Newsroom had a lovely one saying, um, uh, this is writer Marin Anderson saying, I never thought I'd see an atmosphere like that at a women's game uh, and people were knowledgeable, knowing the names of the players, so you know things are really taking off. Jamie Wall for RNZ said, look, the energy of this crowd was different to anything at Eden Park. No massive howls of protest at refereeing decisions. No one was rotten drunk, even though it was a Saturday night. Uh, the general feel was that this was an environment you could be happy and safe in, um, and you know, he, and he said, look, forget the quantifiable stuff like the numbers. It was just a very a valuable event in that broader context. But yeah, shame and a bit weird if um, 6,000 odd people had tickets but there were two other matches earlier I think Fiji South Africa France uh, uh, and I think Wales all played so maybe some of their fans came went home and didn't want to see New Zealand Australia and some of the players will become household names if they aren't already yeah and one of the favorites is um uh, Ruby Tui, do you remember d- during the um, uh, the uh, Olympics, she was you know a star on the BBC with her very candid and upbeat uh, interviews, and uh, yeah, she went viral uh, for sure. So they they definitely look for Ruby now for a post match interview, and on Sparks, a bit more downbeat, but um, this is what she said when she was asked by the sideline commentator um, the old classic question, "How do you feel?" Oh, it's all right, eh? Play in front of a sold out um, Eden Park. I said before, you know, um, just heard. Who's people saying we couldn't do it? Um, and I just am so proud. Of, I'm actually, I don't think I've ever been this proud to be a New Zealand rugby player than tonight. Um, yeah, they said women's sport couldn't sell it out, and here we are. So I'm, I'm pretty proud to be a Kiwi right now. That's lovely.
Yeah, and apparently the the next uh, triple header at Waitakere Stadium, um, where the Black Ferns are playing Wales and other teams involved, all the tickets for that are sold out. So smaller than Eden Park, obviously, but that's good. I think where you have a smaller ground, maybe, but it's full of people. There'll still be a great, it'll look good on television. It'll be a good atmosphere. And uh, look, I'm sure that um, there's a bit of a lull because I think, unlike a football or World Cup or other tournaments, you have to wait a few more days because rugby's so bruising. So there can be lulls sometimes between the matches, particularly with the home team, the Black Ferns, but look I think um, all the signs are good for a, a positive tournament and a, it'll be a, and a good media experience and kind of what the organisers and you know those women in the team have been hoping for all these years.